You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. So your deer season just opened, you said, in Ontario? Yeah, most of Ontario's uh, gun hunt for deer, uh, white-tailed deer, just opened uh, yesterday. And uh, the bow season's been open for a while, but this is the, the the next couple of weeks are the big weeks for most of Ontario for, for the gun season for deer. Right. And how long does the gun season last? Uh, there's, in, in my unit where I hunt, uh, and I hunt, uh, my home, it's, uh, two weeks for, um, the gun hunt. And then, uh, the first week of December, there's another, uh, muzzleloader only hunt. Okay. Okay. Hmm. So that's, um, that's a bit more modeled after a few of the Eastern states are, are like that, which here in British Columbia, there's a lot of people, you know, for deer and for elk and stuff are advocating for that sort of thing like the yeah. bow season and then the muzzleloader season and the rifle season at <clears throat> at the end seems have, to be have a... crossbows in the uh muzzleloader season oh there you go people are going to be like why does he hate crossbows <laughs> i already got a caller right in and he was like what's wrong with crossbows why does everybody do that he was a new hunter from Nova Scotia, I think it is like, why does everybody always? <laughs> yeah, ev- everyone has their season, and uh, we find that here in Ontario too, where um, there's so much tradition with the uh, the gun hunts for deer that you know mm. people they like what they do and they like what they use as far as um, you know a, a gun or a muzzleloader or a bow and a traditional bow. You know, then you get into crossbows versus um, compounds, and so yeah, it's uh, the the deer season thing is something that uh, is not everyone always agrees on what it should look like. Yeah, totally. I remember when uh, Dr. Keith Monroe was on the show, we were talking a bit about that and just kind of like how, how much that the deer hunting culture is ingrained in Ontario's culture and stuff and families and generations and going back and doing things a certain way. And yeah, it's, and, and it's, it's why I let, Keith handle those calls because there's 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 so different and so varied and everyone's really passionate and uh, I, I get it from both sides too I, I grew up in a, a family oriented hunt camp um, where the, you know those two weeks of the the rifle hunt for deer that was what everyone lived for that was that was Christmas day same as opening morning for deer and uh, as kids we looked forward to getting out of school and in in some places uh not not my school obviously and it was never that lucky but some schools they just they, they get a whole week off uh they don't even bother putting classes on because so many kids uh, are out deer hunting with uh, their parents and so i did that growing up and probably not until i moved to um the house that i have now with some property and and my wife and i started hunting there uh so not in a hunt camp situation anymore so you know there's that hunt camp culture and then there's the uh, those people that just uh, hunt locally close to home um, and it's 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 different it's it, I miss some of the hunt camp culture but I also like the ability to you know hunt from uh, my own home sleep in my own bed and um, you know be there and and have the kids around as well yeah no that's a good uh, that's a good compromise when when you have kids at home rather than packing up and leaving all the time you gotta be like me when you're older and they're gone. <laughs> well, well, and then you, you think about, uh, you know, just like right now, my kids are only uh, three and five, so they're quite young. And last year in the muzzleloader, uh, my wife harvested a doe. And 
so it was you know this frantic text message that said i you know i i, I got a dough and then my mind starts running be like okay i gotta get into town i gotta get you know my my son from daycare uh my daughter just got off the bus and then i had to get out there and help her get the deer out so she waited with the deer for almost an hour um be- before i got there and of course we were back and you know away from the trails and it was it was a pretty good good haul out but the kids came there and you know all the pictures the kids are in the pictures and i know we're going to look back on that in years and you know you remember everything about it oh yeah. absolutely that is just like that is like a the coolest family problem to have <laughs> yeah it, it and it was and you know what they there what? was there was like a foot of snow and um my my daughter at the time she wasn't quite it was muzzle or she was december she wasn't quite five yet and she never complained she never had anyone pick her up or carry her she trudged through the snow she was just excited to be there and um my my youngest he took a little bit more help but uh i mean he was only six months six months removed from really you know getting his feet under him and um you know being able to walk on his own in the woods without snow so it was it was something to see Oh, cool. No, those are, those are great stories. So did, have you, did you see anything yet? Like kind of close calls, chances? Yeah. So we did, this is the first time since we moved to this property in 2013 that we don't have a doe tag between my wife and I. Mm. And, uh, so, uh, we're bucks only for the hunt and I've actually seen four deer already, um, which is a pretty good start because I only hunted yesterday and this morning and, uh, I saw three yesterday and one today, so that I, I'm taking it as a good sign. But you know, it, it really ebbs and flows in in the rifle hunt. We're we're fortunate to live where we do, and we're surrounded by hunt camps essentially. It's three, four, five, six hundred acres, and so big tracts of land. No one's there all year long, so all of a sudden you've got ATVs and dozens of hunters and you know generators going around the camps, and it, the the deer get pretty scarce for a while. I think they say, "What's going on here?" And, <laughs> And you don't see them except for trail cam picks at like midnight. So uh, it usually starts to slow down after the first couple of days. And then you, it takes a little bit of time for them to get moving again. Huh. Wow. That is just so different than what, what we're used to. So yeah. yeah, no, nobody has like camps. I mean, just the outfitters have camps and those are actually usually in the high country. So um, very different, but it's so cool. It's just so Canadian. Um, you know, it's just so the hunting cultures and you know and the land is just so different from province to province and territory to territory it just man it would be wouldn't it be just so cool just to be able to travel around and just immerse yourself in to what defines the hunting culture of all of the regions of Canada just like for your own like to show people but to just experience what what that's like and different ways of doing things that would be so cool yeah. yeah i think that's why domestic travel for hunting in canada is is so sought after you know canadian hunters don't don't have to go very far to have so many different experiences and and you see the the bucket list that a lot of hunters have that's you know could be within their own province uh something that they don't experience all the time but uh, definitely go to other provinces and it's it's really remarkable uh the different opportunities we have and we we see that in ontario too we we look at uh you know, different types of hunting from southern Ontario, where it's largely agriculture, uh, you know, right through to central Ontario, where they have that hunt camp culture. And then in northern Ontario, you have uh, a strong kind of public land, crown land uh, hunting culture. And so you even get that gradient within a province. And, and we notice that in Ontario uh, in a big way. 
Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. BC is the same way, you know, just the ecosystems are so varied, you know, um, Rocky mountains to coast and then sort of Southern, you know, almost arid habitat to like North of the Arctic Pacific divide kind of thing. And so that, that, you know, different ecosystems, different wildlife assemblages, and of course, different hunting cultures. So Man, even you could probably just spend your lifetime in your own province, just traveling around, going, "Oh, this is what you do up here," and and stuff like that. So I don't know. Would be a cool Netflix series for Canada. Yeah. There you go. Next project. Just, yeah, totally. Um, hey, everybody! It's Mark Hall, your host, and it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. <clears throat> the Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. They are a fully stocked parts and services center for all makes and models of vehicles. They have seven service bays and a team of licensed technicians and are well-known for their off-road outfitted Tacoma 4x4s. And they are sweet trucks. I like them. (laughs) Totally, yeah. Really appreciate title sponsor of Alpine Toyota. Um, We're joined on this episode by Matt DeMille from the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters. You're the Director of Policy and Programs. That's me. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, totally. Uh, it's great you could make it. Um, this actually unfolded fairly fairly quickly, so really appreciate that. So tell us a little bit first, before we get into the firearms thing, what does a director of policy and programs do? What's, what's your job? <laughs> well, that's, I saw that's some new... pictures of you on the website, and it's like one picture you're in camo, and then the next one you're like in a suit and tie. So, <laughs> yeah, that I, I wish it was more the camo than the suit and tie, um, <laughs> and and maybe I could get away with that a little more these days working from home. But uh, that's a newly minted title. Um, uh, we in the past have had at OFH we had what we call the Fish and Wildlife Department. And so that's largely, we'll call it the kind of boots on the ground and conservation wing uh, of the of the federation. And we also did the, the policy work. And with this new uh, department, so policy and programs, we brought all of our programs together. So not just the conservation programs, uh, but bringing in some of our outreach programs. So that's more programs trying to get people out fishing and hunting and keep them fishing and hunting. And um, you know, just talking about uh, fishing and hunting and the heritage uh, in a positive way. And so that joins our conservation program. So that's more of our, um, you know, still outreach programs for things like invading species. Um, we're strong uh, in that regard. We've got a almost 30-year-old program for invading species. Uh, and then uh, we also have um, some newer programs, community hatchery program, uh, where we support, uh, in partnership with the government, we support community hatcheries here in Ontario. And then we have a restoration program for Atlantic salmon, trying to bring them back to Lake Ontario. And oh, wow. that's a, there's a number of different kind of pillars of that program. One of them is um, field work, restoring streams um, to make the habitat better for those uh, fish. And then um, our newest program is the Alice Peterborough program. So that's uh, restoring marginal farmlands. You may be familiar with Alice Canada. So Alice Canada uh, operates all across the, the country. And when we have one of the communities uh, here near our head office in Peterborough. So that's kind of the, the program side of things. Uh, and then uh, we have the policy work. So you, you referenced Dr. Keith Monroe. So he's our, our wildlife biologist. And then we also have a fisheries biologist and uh, resource management specialist. 
And uh, that's uh, really looking at everything from, you know, local government policies right through to, um, you know, higher level policies and laws like talking about today, firearms. And then my kind of specific role is the advocacy work associated with that. So not just the kind of uh, advocacy on the specific policies, but taking that, you know, sometimes political, making it political, um, municipal level, uh, provincial level and federal level. So we cover a lot of ground um, and, you know, trying to do pretty much everything related to fishing and hunting uh, that we can and, and then just general conservation work as well, uh, whether it's associated with uh, game animals or not. So uh, there's always lots going on here in the department. Well, yeah, it's uh, OFA is an amazing organization. Um, years ago, I met your executive director um, in, in Vancouver and stuff. And he sat in on a presentation. I was on the board of the BC Wildlife Federation and he was just going through everything that OFA does. And it's like radio channel and then TV shows and magazines. And it was just like, just, I think you're, you're the envy of, of Canada. Um, You know, you got a big membership base, a big population to draw from big hunting culture and, um, that gives you the resources to have all these amazing programs, uh, and, and it affords you, I would say the time and the resources to dedicate to doing really good jobs on stuff like, like you're doing on this, uh, on this firearm portfolio. So, yeah, it's, um, it's something we've been trying to do. Uh, I think we've done it throughout, um, you know, recent decades, but in the last uh, four or five years, we've been working really closely with our affiliates across the country. So all the provincial and territorial uh, federations. So uh, some of them are, um, you know, angler and hunter groups. Some of them are, you know, wildlife federations. They all have different names, but uh, we come together and work uh, under the banner of the National Fishing and Hunting Collaborative. And so that was, you know, all separate entities, all separate organizations, um, you know, with our respective mandates in our provinces and territories. But uh, we came together to work on some national things like getting a socioeconomic study that actually incorporated hunting and trapping and sports shooting. We've always had the fishing uh, survey uh, through the federal government, but we always felt like that was lacking. So that was one of the first things we did coming together. And in the last couple of federal elections, we actually put out questions to all parties. And so it's just a way for us to have a national group. And that's one of the things that we've struggled with is when you, you go to Parliament Hill, uh, even with a, an organization the size of OFH is often you, you know, get that, well, you're not a national organization. So a lot of these panels and a lot of things the federal government does, they want that national presence. Mm. And so uh, we decided that, you know, we're, we're all like-minded. We're all, you know, working together on these issues. Why not, you know, put a label on it so that we can take that to Parliament Hill and say, you know, this is who we are. And we don't always agree on every single policy and that's not the way it's set up. It's more of if we have, you know, similar objectives and we have things we want to work on then let's do it. And so OFH is the lead organization and we're kind of um, situated not only, you know, with a, a large organization and capacity to do these things with staff and, and, you know, the time we need to, to do it, but also close to Ottawa as well. Um, so that proximity uh, for national advocacy is, is really important. And so, you know, we, we feel that that's really important and it's something that we kind of take our um, capacity that we have and, and put it to work. And, and hopefully that benefits the rest of the country as well. Oh, totally, totally. And, you know, your organization has been kind of my go-to organization for 
information about over the last couple of years about the firearm laws and the bills that are being tabled and you know what those mean and stuff for for Canadians and um, you know even though you're specific to Ontario I think a tremendous amount of work that you do on some of these files are very applicable to all Canadians and uh, so yeah thanks for that on behalf of a British Columbia Hunter. Well, um, yeah, no, I, I appreciate you saying it too, because we, you know, we put these efforts into to national uh, efforts, and obviously it does benefit, you know, our members and the the hunters and anglers of Ontario. But it's nice to get that feedback as well to know that you know outside people are listening, people are watching, and they find the information valuable, and it's just that added incentive to 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 keep uh, investing in in some of these national issues at the level we are. No, absolutely. Uh, I think one of the last ones I just talked about was. Um, the invasive wild pig strategy in in Ontario and and the work that you guys have put behind that it's you know a bit of leadership in Canada and in uh, getting the government to declare them as an invasive species and addressing the the dangers of having just general open hunting seasons on invasive wild pigs and you know and all those problems that that uh, caused causes it so yeah I definitely look forward to you know look to you guys for you know a lot of national information even so. Now, you recently, the organization released uh, a report on firearms. It's got a bit of a longer handle. Um, What firearms are reasonable and proportionate for hunting in Canada? Would you say it's fair that the simple um, title for that is, what is a hunting firearm? Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's that's def, that's definitely it. It was that title was more uh, for the courts and to kind of situate. Yeah, with, no, I, uh, I totally get happening. that. So, so I use the short one for the for the podcast title. What is a hunting firearm? So, um, so walk us through this. This is a super interesting report. It's a super detailed report uh, going through the recent um, prohibition on certain types of firearms and and how that um, influences what we think of a hunting firearm, what is a hunting firearm, how some of them were hunting firearms, like like the whole thing. So maybe, yeah, just start from the beginning. What was the impetus of this? And, and then like walk us through the report and the findings. Yeah, it starts before uh, a lot of people are aware of what happened in May of 2020 when the federal government uh, introduced through order and council uh, prohibitions on thousands of firearms. So that that kind of you know brought everything to the surface, and even those people who may not be you know actively thinking about or involved uh, in uh, federal policies on firearms, it kind of brought it to the forefront in a big way. But this kind of conversation around what is a hunting firearm, it goes way back. I mean, it goes way beyond you know my time with the federation and and talking about this and thinking about this. And uh, I remember. Um, you know, having conversations here early on in my time with OFH and, you know, you got this push-pull constantly within the hunting community about, well, what is a firearm and what's what's a firearm that, you know, we think is reasonable from a hunting community's perspective. And, and then you've got, um, you know, within our organization, we have a lot of members who are hunters, but they're also recreational shooters. And so they mm-hmm. have a much different you know, idea of what a, 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 even a hunting firearm is, let alone, you know, what a, a firearm is and what a non-restricted firearm should be. And so 
really this this goes back um, more to uh, just the I think the I call it divisiveness now uh, maybe didn't recognize that as divisiveness uh, in the beginning but just these kind of differing opinions on how we view firearms and you know how that translates into kind of public perception and um, feelings about firearms and then ultimately how does that relate to public policy on firearms and so you know it's it's something that you know i personally through my professional career have been like thinking about and you know talking about even and advocating for you know um different uh, policies uh, or talking about different policies and kind of more of a, with an advocacy uh, lens and then you know realizing that there's really not good information out there there is you know there's a lot of personal knowledge there's a lot of kind of community knowledge but there's not a lot of um, kind of consolidated knowledge in a way that someone if they were really interested in you know figuring out that question of what is a hunting firearm they would have to go all over the place and they'd have to patch together this information to figure that out. So that that's kind of where we started in the conversation. And that okay. goes back many years. And for probably people before me, that goes back decades. Cause you know, I've, I've read some of the, you know, letters and some of the things that people have, you know, been saying in the way they've been talking about this. And, you know, this, this predates the, the OIC in a big way. Huh? Yeah. That, uh, <clears throat> That conversation about firearms, like now that I think about it, it's like, yeah, it, it does go back, you know, a long time in, in the hunting world. And, you know, as you know, there's, you know, things that have been brought in through North America, like from a hunting perspective to sort of define a firearm, which some of it was like limiting the capacity, like, you know, our waterfowl, you know, shotguns with can hold a maximum of three shells. And, you know, as you know, that has a lot to do with sort of hand handicapping yourself a little bit in, in how efficient you can take ducks, right? Like it's, you know, it's a boom, boom, boom. And then you got to like stop and reload and a bunch of ducks go by and thumb their beaks at you and stuff. And, you know, like it's, it's there, there's, there's things like that, um, you know, that hunters have been involved in in defining firearms, but man, it's got a lot more complicated. Well, I, I think <laughs> that's a big decades. part of it is, is just really, you know, when we think about, you know, a hundred years ago, we think about 50 years ago, you even think about 30 years ago, the, the options were limited, uh, mainly just because of, you know, access that people had and now access with big box stores and with online shopping, uh, it just, it's, it's a different world. And so, you know, I, I think about all the firearms that I have, they all came from my father and he passed them down to me. Um, and I, I didn't really pick firearms. I didn't have to pick firearms. I kind of had everything I needed. And, you know, some of those are multi-generational guns. Um, and some of them have, you know, 40, 50, 60 year histories, you know, just in my family, let alone, you know, the history of maybe that model of firearm. And you know, a, a modern hunter, uh, a lot of hunters, as you know, they, they, they come with different motivations now. It's not all, it's not all family driven. Sometimes there's uh, an adult onset hunter that's, they're making decisions for themselves. And now they have the internet and they go to the internet and be like, where do I start? You know, like, what do I even need to think about from a hunting firearm perspective? And now I have options. And so what do I do with those options? 
And I think that that's an interesting concept to me as someone who grew up with hunting. You know, it was kind of like you're just kind of learning through osmosis by being around it. And you're also just being kind of, you know, here's a firearm and well, here's the cartridges you use. And, you know, this is, you know, why we do this and why we use this. And, you know, you're not doing that kind of self-learning where you're exploring beyond those kind of biases that maybe your parents or grandparents or others have in, in that mentorship. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of learning, I think, that happens with a new hunter that maybe doesn't happen with uh, a hunter that... Uh, comes from, you know, family history of hunting. And so there's there's that kind of new concept emerging as well. You know, not just the options, but it's also just, it's no longer just an, an activity that's handed down. It's something that people are getting into with for a lot of different reasons, a lot of different motivations. Yeah, and there's, there, like everything in consumer products nowadays, there's so much to choose from, you know, like, you know, back you know, in my grandfather's day and my father's day, it's like, you know, you want a gun. And it was kind of like, well, do you want this one with the walnut stock or the one with the walnut stock? Right. And it's like, maybe there were some choices in calibers, like 30 odd six and 300 or something like that. I mean, 270 hadn't even been invented probably in my grandfather's day. So, so yeah, I, I, you know, I think, you know, people weren't maybe didn't have as many choices manufacturers were producing you know less stuff now it's like man there's pink ones and there's teal colored ones and there's you know ones with adjustable stocks and all kinds of stuff and so it like when you said it's a choice you know for for a modern hunter it's a choice with a lot of personal preferences like maybe functional and non-functional choices, you know, as well that just didn't exist when stuff was handed down. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really what I was trying to do with this report. I was kind of going through that journey of, you know, if, if I was selecting a firearm, you know, what are all the things that, you know, I would look at and a consumer is probably not going to go to the depth that I did. And, you know, it's like any sort of report like that, you get sidetracked and you go, to, you go on rabbit holes for hours that sometimes, you know, it's hard to come out of. And a lot of that didn't make it into the report. Um, and, you know, you just, you, you, you find new things that you think you should have known years ago about, you know, the origins of the firearms you're using and where they came from and the kind of timelines of, you know, how things evolved. And, you know, you were talking a minute ago about, um, the kind of evolution of, you know, even thinking of uh, capacity on cartridges from, um, or shells from a hunting perspective. And, you know, you, you were talking about a more recent one, but then, you know, think about waterfowling and, you know, the origins of waterfowling with punt guns, right? Yeah. Where, you know, that, that that's truly kind of a conservation conversation right there that happened a long time ago. And now we don't even think about that. So, you know, you and I, we can kind of, we can think about some of those more modern um, filters that we put on, you know, what's in this case legal and not legal. Um, but you go back and um, you, you look at the firearms that they used for uh, hunting waterfowl. Now that was market hunting. It's, it's different hunting yeah. than we know today, yeah. but still it's a part of that conversation and that history and the evolution of our thinking around what a firearm is, what we use it for, how we use it. Um, and we have different lenses now. And so I kind of, with the report, I, I started to put all of those different kind of filters in right along the way. And so it's, you know, it, it, conservation is just one of the filters that, that we use. Yeah, absolutely. Now, 
who is the, we'll start getting in, into the sections of the report and what your findings were. So just kind of from a high level, what was the purpose of the firearm report that, that you authored? Like who, who was it intended for? Where was it meant to go? Like, it's not just a, uh, an FYI piece for, you know, posterity's sake. Yeah. So it, 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 was intended and and was developed for the purposes of informing the courts. So um, when the the bans, the OIC bans from last May happened, very soon after, a number of different individuals and groups took the federal government to court. So there's a number of different court challenges, and um, a few of the applicants for those proceedings approached OFAH and said, "Do you have credible information on what a hunting firearm is?" And that was important because when the bans were introduced, they talked specifically, and this is where the name of the report came from, but that idea of what was reasonable and, and proportionate. So what happened was the the federal government said when they banned those firearms, they said, we know people are using them for hunting and wreck shooting, but it's not reasonable or proportionate for those activities. So we know people are using them, but, and so then, I guess like there me. was the uh, people remember there was kind of the flamboyant response of our prime minister of you know making reference to it was something along the lines like you don't need an AR-15 to take down a deer you know or something like that that kind of is like a uh, um, you know a, whatever they call it a soundbite for what you're talking about in a in, in a bigger bigger context <laughs> yeah and it, it it was so there's there's a few things happening it, it you know at, the, the reason that they're required or that they said that because it, it kind of sticks out in the rationale for um the the bands and they needed to say that because there's a requirement for the uh, cabinet the governor and council to rationalize that it's not that they're those firearms are not used for hunting or recreational shooting. So right in the uh, legislation, in the criminal code, it says that. And so they had to rationalize it by saying they weren't used for hunting or that they were used, but they're not proportionate uh, and reasonable for those activities. And so it was it was kind of the, the part that everything was hanging on because we knew that people were using those firearms. Canadians, you know, they've got pictures of, you know, one of the prohibited firearms with, you know, someone, it's a non-restricted firearm prior to the prohibitions and they're right there with a, you know, a deer and they're posing with these firearms. People, Canadians were using them. And so they, they had to use that justification. But that left us with the question of, well, if people are using them, you know, then what is reasonable and what's proportionate? And that was really the question that was going on in my head as I was doing the kind of policy analysis on those prohibitions. I was saying, okay, well, what what is then? Because there was no other rationale. It just said that. It didn't say that and say, and here's why. So you were left asking that question, well, why isn't it reasonable and why isn't it proportionate? And so that's really how it got started. And and so at the same time that, you know, I'm thinking that through the, the policy analysis, these other people are taking the government to court and then they're asking that question of, you know, well, what is it about these firearms that, you know, make them so that they're not reasonable and proportionate for hunting? And then, you know, I just, at that point, it was like, okay, this is a question 
that we need to answer because this is going to be a critical question in these court proceedings. And as we all know, things that happen in the courts, it's going to inform firearms policy moving forward. Right, right. So part of what this is addressing, I guess, is this kind of like a future you know, risk if you've got a firearm that's like, let's just say it's a 308 caliber and it has a maximum magazine capacity of three and it's X centimeters long and you have that exact firearm in handed down by your grandpa with the walnut stock, you know, da da da. And then that exact same firearm, magazine, caliber, everything in a firearm that looks very different. And so what you're saying is, is like, they're saying, well, that one is not needed for hunting, but that one is okay. And one of the lenses, I guess, that you're putting on this is like, well, people are using it because it's the exact same caliber, same ballistics. And it's like absolutely functional for deer hunting. So you know, does that put all 308s, you know, at risk at some point or, well, it, yeah, it, I mean, yeah. I get it. What, then what is the thing that differentiates between these two firearms? One, I think, I think that's the age old problem in firearms policy is one, it's a lack of understanding for people who don't have and use firearms, but it's, it's that lack of understanding um, and maybe a simplistic understanding. And then you have, you know, modern media and, and movies and TV and everything else, it all contributes to uh, and reinforces biases and perceptions. And so it's it's kind of like, are we, are we going to continue to have a debate, you know, openly about just different opinions, or are we going to actually put some rigor behind this where we say, okay, no, this is, this is what a hunting firearm is. And I think, you know, for me, it was this, you know, as a hunter, you know, you, you walk through these steps and, you know, I said earlier, you know, maybe not picking a firearm because I had firearms handed down to me, but then I think about, well, it's not just the firearm, right? You just mentioned ballistics. It's, it's the cartridge, it's the caliber of the firearm and then the cartridge. And, you know, even within the cartridge, there's just so many options now. And Mm -hmm. so it's not just the firearm, it's the firearm and it's the accessories, you know, operating, non-operating. And then, you know, it's the cartridge and sometimes it's the combination of those things and the barrel length and everything else. And you start saying, well, like, okay, well, this is a lot more sophisticated. Even if we're making these choices as hunters, just based on years of knowledge and just kind of, you know, maybe it's what we've always done. There's still a lot that goes into it. I think that it it always comes back to, well, hunting's just a simple thing. You just go out in the woods and you just kill something, right? Like that's just what happens. And, you know, you go out and people think you have a hundred percent success. And, you know, it's, it's the misconceptions about hunting and the misconceptions about firearms. And then you put those two things together and it's like, oh, well, people have no idea what's going on and what it actually, what actually goes into a hunter's thought process. And so this report is kind of that, I think it's like a systematic unpacking. Some of it's kind of, you know, subconscious or the unconscious thinking of a hunter in what goes into firearm selection. And I'm not saying that every hunter looks at, you know, their firearm selection or even their cartridge selection, you know, the same degree that this report does, or, you know, what, um, every hunter does because some are far more into ballistics um, than others but there's a lot that goes into it and I think that that's part of it too is you want to inform the courts and just you know the general public and even the hunting community and the firearms community at large is that you know hunting is 
and can be a complex and sophisticated topic, especially when you're talking about across a country, as we talked about, you know, like early on in the, in the show, like it's so diverse. And so how do we apply such simplistic thinking to something that is just, it's, it has extraordinary, um, you know, changes from one side of the country to the other and even you know within province you know even within individuals and because it's it's all based on on preferences and so we really wanted to start to answer some of those questions and then you know you talked about posterity is that i think that the secondary benefit is that now there's something you know whether it helps with the court proceedings or it doesn't is that it's something that we as a hunting community we can look at and we can reference when we're talking about what is a hunting firearm no man yeah that's uh <laughs> that's a deep dive into this subject um wow yeah it's uh the, the i'm sort of like you the more you start thinking about this and what different things mean different to different punters and stuff like it 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 does it's just like the simplicity of like just this is a hunting firearm like just see this thing it's like wood and black and it's like everybody <laughs> use this and it's like well it was like the one i have it was made in 1964 you know and it's like for a young lady getting into hunting nowadays it's like it's physically too big like she wants to look for one that's like an actually made for someone her size or or youth hunters and then it's like well i don't want one that looks like grandpa's gun i want one that's got some color on it and like you know at and and pe- people might think that a lot of that stuff is just sort of like app ah, you know like who cares what it looks at but i'm sure you guys will probably agree when you have a hunting firearm at the end of the day you have to be proficient with that to take an animal's life as quickly and humanely as possible and at least for me a tremendous amount of my ability to do that is simply based in my confidence in how I can use that weapon. doesn't matter the caliber or what it looks like or whatever. If I have any uncertainties about, ah, there's just, it feels wrong or whatever. And I take that into the field, like there's a risk. I'm not going to be as proficient with it. So that that's one of those nuanced things that you know, maybe people sh- should understand is it's like, it's like golf clubs or, you know, or hockey sticks or, or whatever. It's like, this is a tool that has, has a really serious end result for, for humane taking of animals. And it's like, the more choices people have, um, the better are that they might be a lot more proficient at it. And so if we start to limit that, then you got people out there using firearms that are too big for them or too heavy or whatever. So well, and, and where do you where do you draw the line? I think I think that's the thing that that got me in this conversation. Um, is you know I would I would go down these rabbit holes and I would you know you, you were I went into this like trying to really put some parameters on what a hunting firearm is, and the harder I tried, I think the less successful I was because you know I, I could do it for me, I could do it for my experience, and maybe I could do it for my close group of friends who all hunt in a very similar way. You know, but then, you know, maybe I'm talking to you two and I'm saying, okay, yeah, like, you know, how do, how do you hunt? And then all of a sudden, you know, my world just expanded 
as far as you know what I think about firearm selection and you know what it means and what you think about you know where you know I hunt out my back door so maybe I'm not as concerned about you know the taking a firearm on a long trip uh, or you know backpacking in somewhere or you know doing something completely different than what I'm used to and and so you you look at everything in a different way and then um, you know you, you were talking a minute ago about you know, options and those options make people proficient. And I think that people forget that not all firearms are created equal. And then I started looking at, you know, like, let's just look at one species. And so you look at white-tailed deer and, you know, a common firearm used for white-tailed deer, uh, at least here in Ontario, is a 30-30. You know, lots of, you know, old 30-30s with open sights and yeah, great deer hunting gun. Is that reasonable and proportionate for hunting white-tailed deer? Absolutely. But would you take that up in, you know, to, you know, long range, you know, kind of uh, an alpine or a mountain hunt or somewhere where you're, you know, shooting long distances and, you know, hoping to reach out to, you know, three or 400 yards? Um, probably not. And yeah. so is it reasonable and proportionate for whitetail deer hunting in a different environment? Maybe not. And so how do you come up with a definition that's, well, it is in this case and it isn't in that case. And it's the exact same firearm. It's not even, you know, one that looks like another one or works like another one. It is the same firearm and you put it into two different situations here in Canada and it doesn't perform the same way. And so it's that idea of, you know, you were saying you want to be proficient. It's performance as hunters. We need performance out of our firearms and performance is dictated by so many things. And it's really hard to put it in this, you know, nice, neat little package. And if we wanted to come up with a one-size-fits-all definition of, of hunting firearm, it's just going to be a hunting firearm is a firearm that is used for hunting. And that, that doesn't help us, right? Yeah. That, 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 like, I mean, what, what, that it's it's not it's not useful. And so you really have to, okay. to unpack it. Yeah, I, no, uh, I, I, I get it. I, I keep coming back to this analogy in my head. I just thought of it a couple minutes ago, something, yeah said Matt, but but it almost seems like the government would come in with this and it's it's like they say everybody does pond hockey right it's not a professional thing there's no scoring there's nothing everyone does it for fun but you can only use wooden hockey sticks carbon fiber graphite any of that sort of stuff the the dark the professional looking ones can't use them it's just it's not black fair tape. yeah black tape can't use them but all left-handed yeah, wood wood hockey sticks, sure, go ahead. And there might be someone out there who's like, well, I played hockey for 15 years, and, you know, that's what I'm good at is with these light carbon fiber hockey sticks, and yeah. now you can't use them just for pond hockey. And then the goaltender says, hey, I'm playing hockey too. I can't use that skinny little thing. <laughs> You'll score on me all the time. So. Yeah. Or, or they're gonna they're gonna restrict the size of the pads, um, like yeah. they do yeah. now with the goalies, right? It's it's uh, it, yeah. it, it's a good it's a good analogy because um, it's technology, and I think that that's the one thing that is fascinating about firearms and cartridges and the performance is that the technology is expanding every day, and we and I don't I honestly I don't even know why this is. Uh, but we, including the hunting community, we have a perception of what a hunting firearm is. And for a lot of people, it's because that's you know what we grew up with. Uh, that's what is advertised and marketed as a hunting firearm. At least it has been you know up until recent years. But the technology in almost every aspect of firearms, 
right from, you know, the construction materials, just like the hockey stick analogy, right through to the shape, size, weight uh, of the bullets and the kind of terminal ballistics that you get and the performance that that has, it's all changed dramatically. And the way that we think about finding firearms hasn't, and it hasn't changed with that kind of technology um, evolution. And so I think that that's the disconnect is that there are so many things that a hunting firearm could be, but in our minds, it's very narrow. Right. Well, let's, Mm. let's throw the big one on the table, which is in everybody's mind, military weapons, military style weapons, assault weapons. These are all the words that we heard military grade weapons, military assault weapons are not needed for hunting. Those are not reasonable and proportionate. So that's, that's what we're prohibiting these ones versus the traditional firearm that I think that's the crux of what the public sees, the non hunting public, the non firearm, you know, is, is this, and they hold them right up on TV, right? Like these, these, guns that have the AR platforms or whatever. So, so dig, explain the unpack that one for us, this military weapon versus hunting firearm. Yeah. The the terminology is important and it's, it's really what's driven this conversation and it's really hard to come back to zero and start a good conversation from scratch about what we're actually talking about, because the names that are used, the the terminology, the way that um, they're even described, it really starts to lead the conversation before you can get into the specifics. And so, you know, it's it, that that idea of what is a military firearm was one of the first things that I tackled in this uh, because I didn't have a strong understanding, a strong enough understanding of the kind of history, the origins, the lineage of some of these firearms. And I think that that's what's really important to go back to. And so there's there's some terminology issues there, uh, but there's also, uh, I think, confusion around what a military, or in this case, almost always said a military style firearm, is that there's huge differences between what are standard issue military firearms versus what civilians can use, can own and use uh, in, and we'll, we'll specifically talk about Canada because that's what we know. And the, the big misconception with the public anyways, is that when you're talking about one, they're, they're often said, you know, semi-automatic and most people hear automatic and they think, oh, they're automatic. Machine and, guns. Yeah, yeah. And the automatic in... <laughs> in those firearms and semi-automatics is about the reloading. It's not about the firing capability. And so really that what, what they were trying to do with these bands was they were trying to limit the firing capability of firearms and semi-automatics uh, are not automatics from a firing uh, capacity perspective. And so that's the, that's one of the biggest challenges that even within the hunting community that you hear that and you're like, well, that, you know, we're trying to get rid of those assault weapons or those military style firearms. And everyone thinks that we're still somehow in Canada allowing uh, automatic, uh, fully automatic 
firearms. And that's not the case. They've, they've been illegal for decades. And so that's, you're trying to overcome something that isn't even real. So then when you're trying to have a conversation about, well, what is an actual military style firearm? You can't even get past that. And people don't realize that true military style firearms, they have uh, a switch on them that allows them to go between a selector switch to go between fully automatic and semi-automatic. They usually have the capacity to do both. And so it's, you know, people are just making these assumptions that, oh, well, yeah, we got to get rid of those. We got to get rid of those. And we're not even really talking about firearms that are legal right now mm, in Canada. I, I, it, it depends, too, like what your definition of a military firearm would be, because my best friend has a 303 British rifle that was used by a family member in World War One. That it, it's a military issued rifle, and he hunts with it. So that, technically speaking, is more of a military rifle than if you went and you bought an AR-15 style stock from Cabela's. Yeah, you think about like innovation in firearms has been driven by war. It's driven by military development of the technology associated with firearms and with cartridges and you know that that's what's fascinating is when you actually look back we we have a tough time actually differentiating uh what's military and not military in its origins and so like what is military is it the origins is it the current use that's what i was just talking about you know but you raised that good point about well, where did it come from and in that case it's it might actually be a a, a military firearm and then the, like we really start to look at, especially with these firearms, you start to look at, well, what was created for the military is generally not what is marketed to civilian uh, markets. And so you have, in, in a lot of cases, you have these you know, conflicts um, in whatever time period, and you pick this kind of standard issue um, military firearm, and you're going to find a lot of surplus ammunition and you're going to find a lot of people who have familiarity maybe brought those firearms you know back is that there's it's really hard to draw the distinction between um those conflicts and um you know the origins and then you also think about in a lot of cases you've got different calibers and so you have a slightly different caliber that the military will use and then they will market to civilians something that is almost identical in some cases identical with a different name and so you start to see you know the, this little bit of separation between the markets but in a lot of cases you can't and so like 30-06 a lot of the things that you know we we think of as you know hunting calibers those are those have military origins that was developed for the military and used by the military for decades and and yeah. a lot of the reason all the millimeter calibers were European seven mm military yeah. six mm seven mm all all that so yeah the, there, there's yeah th th like it, they're all something hmm. they've all come from military origins in some ways even if they've been changed for a civilian market it comes from technology technology advancements uh, or innovation that's happened uh, through militaries and so it's it's really important for us to talk about what is military you know military origins military use you know military versus civilian use what's actually available to people 
Uh, and then, you know, the big one now, and you, you see it all over the industry is mil spec. And so it's like advertised and that's, it's a, it's a marketing strategy, right? This is mil spec. Well, mil spec doesn't mean that it's used by the military. It means that it's made to certain specifications that meet military standards to be a military firearm. It actually has to be inspected by government. And so it's, it's terminology again, that's used. And so people say, well, that's mil spec. Well, you know what? Like I use the example of, um, you know, Ford trucks. They always talk about using, you know, military grade components. And so like, that's the exact same strategy that the firearms industry is using to market the different components of the firearms. And sometimes they're not even, they're, they're non-operating parts of a firearm. It might be the construction materials and have nothing to do with the operating system. And so it's, this, this was the part that I found the most interesting because I had the least knowledge in what was actually happening with military use, past military use versus modern military use, and the differences between military and civilian markets and understanding how that translates into what can actually be considered a military firearm. And that's why you see military style used so much is because that's a way to get away from, well, we're not actually calling it military, but the impression that's left in everyone's mind is that it is military by using that term. Right, right. Huh. And yeah, and and it's really just based on, you know, like the look of the firearm, like we talked earlier, it could, you could compare two side by side, same magazine, same, you know, caliber, same ballistics performance, you know, the whole, the whole thing. So at the end of the day, why, so, so why were those types of firearms carved off and, and prohibited and currently the way those firearms are called prohibited, the, 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 the legal definitions that allows them to identify those, how does that separate from what can still be used for hunting? Well, it's, it's, it's quite complicated because there were so many different firearms that were prohibited and generally like the classification system, uh, you'll work through the classification system and it will be used by the RCMP to determine what is, what classification status a firearm will have. In this case, a lot of it was done by excluding, there was two, there was two categories that were uh, based on um, muzzle energy and um, bore diameter, excluding those two. The other firearms were by type. So they kind of binned different firearms into different types. And so they had all of the different types that were in these, you know, kind of, or had, um, you know, military um, style firearms that, they had classified in, you know, the M14s or, you know, there's a lot of conversations about the ARs and the, it's those types that I think um, really drove the conversation. So it was, you know, I use the example of um, the Springfield Armory M1A series. And so they have a number of different versions of um, the M1A and some are very tactical looking. And so they give you that kind of um, uh, different look from what people would think of as a traditional hunting firearm. And some of them um, aren't, they're not all the same as far as the kind of functionality of them. But there are versions that have 
a description, a verbal description that would be identical to a uh, traditional hunting firearm, the firearm that I use, is that it would be, you know, woodstock, 22-inch barrel, chambered in 308, semi-automatic, and you start to say, oh, well, like, that sounds like my Winchester Model 100, you know, kind of iconic deer hunting firearm, but, you know, what's, what's the difference? It has the exact same kind of uh, description. Well, then you, you start to look at some of the other um, aspects of it, and they're, they're both, um, you know, mag, box magazine fed. And you see, okay, well, it, you know, it does have kind of a military aperture sight, and, you know, there's a Picatinny rail, and, uh, well, you, you look at it, and it just, it has more of a military firearm look. Still has, you know, that traditional wooden stock, and, you know, the the shape that you would expect with a shoulder firearm, something that we would think of as a traditional rifle for hunting, but it just has a, something that looks a little bit different and it's in that type. So it's an M14 type, which was a standard issue military rifle uh, for the US uh, in the mid 20th century. And so it's it was a military issued rifle. But the difference is, is this goes back to what we were talking about before, that firearm sold to civilian markets is only available in semi-automatic. That's that's the difference between when it was a military firearm, it had that selector switch so it could go into automatic fire. And so it fits that type. It's the look, it's modeled after that military firearm. Like they're right in their marketing description. They talk about it. It mm-hmm. is, and they are catering to people who want that idea of kind of feeling like they're holding on to that um you know, military firearm that they may have seen in, you know, iconic movies. Um, and for whatever the motivation is, they're actually appealing to people to get that firearm for that reason. But it is a different firearm because it's a semi-automatic firearm. And mm-hmm. it, it, the actual functional difference is 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 not easy to determine because it, it doesn't have those same features that the military version of that firearm would have. Right. So is that why in the prohibition, like they actually list like exact make and models of firearms, like model one, two, three is prohibited as opposed to if a firearm has these characteristics. Right. Because if they'd have done that, you're saying then it would have scooped probably all firearms basically. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's the challenge of, um, this prohibition when you look at it is that it didn't follow that same classification standard that we've seen and all of the firearms that went through the classification um, process to get the classification they had before these prohibitions that they would have went through that originally and been given the classification size that they had. The ones that we focused on for the report were non-restricted so that they could be available for hunting because that's what the focus of the report was on. And so, you know, now we're seeing these prohibitions and like they don't, they don't follow that. And so people are saying, well, and you actually look at, you know, there's some Canadian manufacturers who had firearms that were, that were manufactured and marketed to hunters. They were made for hunting. And because they had a kind of modular design and they they had that look, they actually went through kind of a proprietary process, multi-year process with the and went it through it with the RCMP to say, you know, this is the design, you know, we're manufacturing this. It's not compatible. It won't mate with 
AR mm. platforms um, or, um, you know, didn't fit that kind of AR um, firearm, then they said, what will it be? They go through the process, they get non-restricted classification because they're targeting hunters. And then through the prohibition, all of a sudden it's prohibited. And so that, I think that was the confusion that people had. They actually, they went through the government process based on the classification system that was in place and said, here's all the, the things that we did to make this unique so that it would not be compatible. And we put proprietary design in there to ensure that people couldn't easily figure out a way to get past that. And yet it was changed in the prohibitions. And so that was the confusion is that classification, mm-hmm. that standard of classification just completely changed overnight. And it took away that kind of what you call the characteristic approach of kind of looking and dissecting the firearm to say, does this fit the criteria that we've set out to meet this classification? Wow, that's that's crazy. Um, so I guess part of this whole issue with the military, you know, looking or tactical looking like firearms. So one, maybe speak to this, like first, you said these were being used by hunters. So the whole concept was, you know, our argument is, is like hunters don't use them. They have a perception or maybe pose a threat for public safety. So we're just prohibiting those ones. Um, and, and that painted the picture that all hunters were using these traditional looking, looking long rifles, but through working on this report, like, didn't, didn't you discover like that a lot more people in Canada were using newer looking firearms for hunting? Yeah. And, and, and some of them aren't even newer looking firearms. They have a more traditional look, uh, in, in either, you know, all of it or most of it. Uh, they have those wooden stocks. Um, they have that kind of typical kind of uh, traditional um, firearm that we think of uh, for, you know, in particular rifles, but, you know, shotguns as well. And and so I think some of them even fit that. So that that was an issue as well, as it wasn't, it wasn't all just based on the look. Some of the firearms were associated with, um, you know, mass uh, shootings and uh, events that have happened in Canada and elsewhere. Yeah, there was a few of those. Yeah, yeah, and yep. and so there are firearms that are associated with that. Um, but what we did find, we didn't quantify in any sort of way. So our our survey of Canadians was more in the beginning to answer the question of do they or don't they use these firearms and how do they use the firearms? And so we okay. knew that we weren't going to be able to get, um, you know, a sample of all hunters that was going to be representative of, of Canadians to be able to accurately quantify. And, and I don't think that was our intent in the beginning. It was this idea of, well, we're being told that, you know, yeah, they're being used, but it was really hunters were being marginalized in this conversation saying, you know, they're, they're being used, but they're not appropriate is essentially what the government was saying. And we're saying, okay, well, if they're not appropriate, then they must be being used for things that wouldn't be, you know, by our kind of, we'll say hunting standard, it wouldn't fit, it wouldn't make sense. And so that's where we immediately went to that kind of idea of caliber. So we looked and we said, okay, well, Canadians are using them. You know, we got 64 firearms right away, non-restricted firearms. This was soon after the, the prohibitions. And that, that was a pretty good sample for us to dig into. It's in 
by no way even close to the amount of non-restricted firearms that were prohibited. But we looked at that and said, okay, these are these are also probably the more common ones because they're top of mind for people. They were obvious. Um, they were you know maybe listed right there uh, in uh, the prohibitions for people to see right away. And so we we used those. We said, okay, yeah, like there are people using them. And they're actually using them for a lot more activities than we thought. So that the survey that we did in the beginning was was not so much to quantify, but more to say, okay, well, what are they using them for? And that was really, you know, kind of the early stages of trying to answer that question of why is it not reasonable and proportionate? They must be using, you know, uh, they must be using some sort of caliber that, you know, wouldn't be on the radar of hunters, or they must be using, you know, some sort of length of barrel that you know we don't see for hunting or they must be you know there's got to be some characteristic or characteristics that are going to show us that it doesn't fit with hunting as we know it and that's really what we were trying to to figure out and um we don't do we know how many people how many firearms there are you know there was a lot of skepticism too where when we we went out and asked people said you know do you use these firearms and we got a lot of uh fun answers uh, in, in the results saying, I'm not telling you a thing about these <laughs> firearms, right? Because they've just been prohibited. So people think, oh, well, you know, that's the, these results, the government's going to come in and confiscate the results of the survey, and then they're going to know who I am. And, you know, so we, we, we just, we did not want to put hunters in a position. We, want, we wanted good information. So we didn't want to have them feel like we were trying to collect personal information from yeah. them that would get us closer to that quantification of, you know, being able to fact check because you're on the honor system. If, if someone answers that survey without us asking for, you know, their, you know, license number and, you know, history of use of that firearm and all the details around it, we would never have any idea whether they have it now, they used it in the past and sold it or what their personal circumstance was around that firearm. All we wanted to know was, do you use it? How do you use it? So that we could start to paint a picture of what these firearms were used for related to hunting and other activities, uh, these non-restrictive firearms in Canada. Huh. Wow. Now you've, you've probably heard this argument probably even within the hunting community is there are a bunch of those prohibited firearms that very clearly you can put in a pile, like you can separate them based on that tactical, look versus traditional woodstock long rifle right if they're being used for hunting if they're reasonable and proportionate you know for hunting that's fine but the public perceives those firearms differently they perceive them as a public safety threat they perceive them as being automatics when they're not they perceive them as being something that a unbalanced individual would use in uh, a crime simply because it's it's scary looking so so why not just take those away and then the public goes okay we feel better now and y'all carry on with hunting and 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 then we just carry on doing doing what we're doing so so we've heard that argument out there so what's 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 good about it and what's bad about that, that approach, that thinking? Well, it's, it's something we hear all the time. Uh, it's, it's probably in this conversation, whenever we've in, especially in the last four or five years, whenever we talk about 
military or military style firearms, that's what comes up. And you've really got, you've got three sort of feelings in the hunting community. You got the people who use them, feel passionate about them. You got the people who are sympathetic in the middle because they understand, you know, what can happen if we don't talk intelligently about the function of firearms versus the look. And then you've got the people on the other side saying, I don't care. You're making waves that the hunting community doesn't need. And that's gotcha. really what, what yeah. you're talking about. And so it it is it is a challenging conversation to navigate because that is a real sentiment in the hunting community. It is a feeling that, you know, people have. It's it's same with handguns. It's this idea of firearms are not created equal. There are things uh, about certain firearms that are an unnecessary distraction from the positive, um, you know, conservation work and uh, influence that the hunting community has. And therefore, we should just be completely separate. But then within the hunting community, especially those people, not just the people who are sympathetic, but the people who use uh, those firearms, they own them, they use them, they, you know, understand them at a different level. They say, well, you know, some of what we talked about earlier, this is the same firearm I have you know, A and B and, you know, one's prohibited and one's not and the function's the same. And, and they're sitting there going, well, why would you abandon me in this conversation? And we hear that, we hear those words, you know, unity and you got to stick together and, you know, don't abandon, you know, one side cause you'll be next, you know, and you get the slippery slope argument. And so it really just keeps going back and forth and back and forth. And that, that was really why we, you know, we, we talked about needing to have something that we could point to that was really you know, stripping it all down, getting past the emotion on both sides of that discussion and not just debating about, you know, personal preference and saying, well, here's the function of a hunting firearm. Here's what we know as a hunting firearm so that we could have that conversation first. And we felt like that was an important kind of table setter for that debate that you're talking about. Hmm. And so it, like it's because when we start talking about the the firearms that you know look a certain way or you know whatever the perception is is that that becomes an issue and i i totally respect and you know i understand the argument that it's causing a problem for the hunting community that maybe i don't know what the percentage would be but maybe there's a large percentage of hunters just say we'd, we'd like it to go away but i think I actually feel, you know, even, even being around this conversation for many years and thinking, you know, we gotta, we gotta have a better understanding as a hunting community and we've got to come together and at least have that common understanding because the external threats on, you know, hunting and firearms that come from that lack of understanding are real and they're there every day. And we, we know that it's a huge challenge that we're going to continue to face uh, moving forward. And so we have to be aware of it, but my issue is where do we draw the line? And so is it the color of the firearm? And if it's the color of the firearm, I know for many years, and you think of a lot of, you know, muzzle loaders and different things, they're black rifles, right? They're black rifles. And so they look like a traditional firearm in every other way, but you know, black synthetic stock. So mm -hmm. it, is that the line? Or is the line, you know, the one we hear most often, I'm sure, you know, you've heard it before too. It's, it's semi-automatic. You don't need semi-automatic for hunting. You hear that argument all the time. And so then is it, okay, well, you don't need semi-automatic rifle or you don't need a semi-automatic action because there's a lot of people in the waterfowling community that, you know, feel strongly about, 
you know, the benefit yeah. of having um, a firearm like that, or even, you know, varmint hunting where you have multiple targets, you know, like whatever the case may be. And so is it, is the action, is, is that the threshold or is it caliber? You know, is it not even related to the firearm? Is it, you know, a certain, you know, look, there's certain accessories that you can't have. And so that, that's what I was challenged with as I went through and I unpacked, you know, each of the sections thinking about the different lens that we're putting on this conversation. Well, there could be a threshold for any one of those things. And then when you put them all together, it becomes even more blurry. And so it, it was that, I think the sentiment, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think people, they, they want to get rid of the distraction. They don't want it to, they don't want to be drawn into this, you know, perceived conflict that seems you know, outside, but related to what they're doing and they see it on their doorstep. Hmm. But I think that a lot of the components of the firearms that those people use could be drawn into that conversation, depending on how those thresholds are determined and who's determining the thresholds. Is it going to be the courts? Is it going to be the federal government, the RCMP? And what sort of basis or criteria are those going to be based on? Is it going to be, here's another interesting one that, you know, takes me down a whole, you know, other rabbit hole is we're, we're talking about what is a hunting firearm. And I, you know, did this report on what a hunting firearm is, but the reality is that most of the firearms laws that we have, the criteria for classification has nothing to do with hunting. We may have some provincial and territorial laws that, you know, caliber restrictions or certain things for certain species, but most of those firearms laws are not related to hunting. And so you know, like hunting... barrel, like barrel length. Yeah, ex exactly. And, and so you get into this, then you start to say, okay, well, what question do we ask first is, and how is hunting in the grand scheme of firearms classification laws, the way we think about what should be allowed and not allowed or what classification, where does hunting come in? Where does hunting as a consideration come into that conversation? Because right now it's, really you, that kind of legal lens that kind of those broad white lines on the road and then hunting fits within there but there's a lot of people in canada that look and say well i want to be able to take a restricted firearm say a handgun to go hunting that's another you know age-old question about you know should we be hunting with handguns and so right now when we're talking about handguns being restricted you can't use them for hunting and so What's the, you know, some people say, well, what's the basis for that? Because in the U.S., there's lots of jurisdictions that have successful handgun hunting for many species. And what's the difference? And yeah, so yeah. it's so you start to you start to manipulate the conversation because of all these different, you know, kind of um, considerations that you have to make. And you start to say, well, what's the one or what's the suite of considerations that come together to make that determination? And every time you try and do it, and you try and package something together, it doesn't make sense for one reason or another. Right. Well, mm. yeah, like when, you know, the whole the whole issue about handguns and hunting in Canada, or, man, I wouldn't mind having one as a tertiary defense for grizzly bears where, you know, where we live. It's like, you know, yeah. it's last resort, whatever, but, um, you know, not necessarily for hunting, but, but it's, yeah, I mean, if you were to strictly look at the firearm, its caliber, its ballistics, you could say, just like we were talking to the thirty thirty, in in these hunting situations, it it would be um, 
an effective tool for hunting. Like let's just say a 22 caliber handgun for grouse and snowshoe hare hunting. Like at close range, you're going to be like, there is, there is no way to differentiate that as one is for hunting and one is not because they both can do exactly the same thing in the same, the same environment. But it, it's almost like the restrictions and the restrictions are on hunting seem to tie into this kind of this social paranoia that if a handgun is in the hands of a hunter, like I could already own one and, and have the permits and, and the license and go to the range, uh, but I can't take it out hunting. So, so, so lots of hunters already own handguns for non-hunting purposes. But it, it almost sort of seems to me that it's like, well, if you allow them to then use it for hunting, there's somehow they're all going to become criminals and they're going to, they're going to harm people with those firearms. Like, do you think there's a little bit of that thinking in society that, that if a hunter is allowed to use a firearm that has a, let's just say a tactical look, they're somehow that's going to make them become a criminal and, and, and kill somebody with it. Like, is it so, so let's, let's not even allow them to be wowed by this shiny thing sort of. Well, that's it. And I, I, I think that it's that we never even, and it, it goes back to what I was just saying. I don't even think we ever get to that, the, the kind of, we'll call it the hunting filter to say, is this reasonable for people to use for hunting? I think that it's an afterthought in the conversation because it is about the social dialogue around firearms in general. And should we have them? Should we not have them? Which ones should we have? What should they look like? And um, what should they be able to do and not be able to do? And, and you know, depending on who you're talking to, you know, you don't even go through that degree of kind of thinking about them. Some of it's just a visceral reaction to the look of the firearm going like, oh, we can't have that. And that's that's the challenge with it is that mm. it's, it's not about whether it's reasonable uh, or proportionate for hunting, it, it usually doesn't get to that point before a decision is made around whether you can or can't have that firearm and what the classification is going to be. And I think that that's, that's the, the interesting part about this discussion is that there's, there's an emphasis on hunting. And it's, it, it was, it's, it's really interesting to me that the government made a decision and had to apply a lens of hunting and in this case sport shooting hunting and sport shooting to say that yes we can ban these firearms because it's not it, while being used for those activities doesn't mean it's reasonable or proportionate so they had to actually make a determination whether they put evidence behind that or not we don't know because we haven't seen any rationale for it but what's interesting about it is it, it puts hunting directly into this conversation at a level where the consideration is being made and it's forcing hopefully within the courts for them to stop and say, well, what, what is reasonable and proportionate for hunting? And therefore, how was that applied to these specific firearms? And so it's, it's going to bring about a conversation around firearms that maybe we haven't had in the past about classification and how we think about firearms and their uses in Canada. And I hope that as part of that dialogue, and the reason that we that wanted to have this conversation in the first place and why that the report is so comprehensive is because we wanted it to be a resource. It's not something that people are going to look at and they're going to look at, you know, every single word, like it's 68 pages with 
appendices. And that's, that's really just the kind of culmination of, you know, the cohesive kind of thought process around what is a hunting firearm, not all the kind of deep dive into it. And all we're asking people and even the hunting community is just, you know, look at that and think about that because this is going to have um, an impact on that perception that people have. And that's a big part of the problem is we, even as a hunting community, are having a debate around whether we should even be having this discussion or if we should just <laughs> yeah. sweep the problem away because yeah. of yeah. the perception. And so it's like, we, we want to try and say, well, here's the real questions you should be asking that are going to determine the function of that firearm. And the function of the firearm is really going to be a big part of that classification, or at least it has been traditionally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've pointed this out to, to people before, like a few of the, like we mentioned before, a few of the firearms that were prohibited were prohibited simply because they had been ones that were used in mass shootings in Canada. Um, they, they maybe had some of the, you know, the same characteristics or fell under the classification. So I think a reasonable Canadian would say, well, if that one had the capability of being used or was used in a mass shooting, then, then yeah, that should go on the list and nobody else should ever, you know, be able to have access to that firearm. So that, that's kind of, it seems like, it seems logical to the average Canadian, right? Like if it's, you know, was that lethal before then like, let's, let's prohibit that one. So there was a mass shooting in Alberta where several, I can't remember, I think it was five RCMP officers were killed in a Quonset hut in Mayor Thorpe, Alberta. The shooter had a bunch of firearms that were used in that shooting. Two of them are the exact make and model of two of my primary hunting firearms. And one was the model 64, uh, Winchester. My dad bought it in 19, dad bought it in 1965, it was made in 1964, chambered in a 300 Winchester mag. The one that was used in the shooting in Alberta was a 308, exactly the same firearm. It is, it is older than I am. Like it is the most traditional looking, you know, walnut stock firearm that would, people would be like, that's okay. But it was it was used. And, and the other one was, was a, uh, Remington 12 gauge pump action shotgun. And it was like, it was handed down to me from my family and it's, it's a duck hunting shotgun. Right. So, so that even becomes problematic if, if we're ever to look at firearms, you know, from that perspective, it's like, they all have the capability of killing somebody. Yeah. I've got a, <clears throat> I have, a, I have a model 94 30 30 lever action and that's what the mad trapper rat river used up in northern canada when he shot all those rcmp officers mm. and that was a long time ago but that's yeah yeah that was his firearm yeah. some crazy man this is like one, it must have been an exciting endeavor for you, kind of like this this massive eye-opening and, and learning experience. Um, but yeah, to pull all of that conversation together into one comprehensive report, I mean, hopefully 
you know, um, people will use that resource, like you're saying, to, to I, I guess, objectively kind of look at, you know, f- future firearms legislations and, and where hunting fits in and the categorization systems. and Yeah, that's, that's the hope. It's, um, it, you know, it was, it, it, it was hard to bring it together in the sense that, you know, you, you start one place and you go to another place and you come back to that place. And you're also trying to, you're trying to knit it together in a way that the average person can understand the thought process in, you know, what a hunter thinks about related to the firearm that they use. And, you know, you said earlier, it's a, it's a tool and it's a very important tool used in, in hunting. And there's a lot of considerations that need to go into it. And I think that the most important thing is behind, you know, this report and the, why it's kind of, it has that, we'll call it the kind of science approach in the way that we've brought this together is because it's that conversation we need it to be around the function of the firearm we need it to be around you know that the kind of characteristics of the firearm and how they work together so that we can have a good conversation because if we are emotional in the conversation if we respond to incidents if we you know Mm -hmm. respond to the look or the appearance then it's not going to make sense it's not going to make sense for what we have now and it's not going to make sense for how we apply that system in the future is that we want some certainty hunters want it firearms owners in general want it you know the government and the public should want it too because it's it's a system that we can look at we can say it's evidence-based it's consistent and it's applying all of those kind of filters or considerations in determining classification and in this case in particular with the report it's well how does that work for hunting what are those things that we need to think about that we want the government to think about in this case we want the courts to think about this is a hunting firearm and here's why it's not just about getting a firearm going out to the woods and shooting an animal there's a lot goes into it and you know very rarely can you take one firearm of you know chambered in a certain caliber and go out in different conditions for different species in different areas of the country and use that same firearm firearm and you know as you said feel proficient and feel good about the performance of that firearm that you can make a you know a good quick clean kill uh to harvest that animal and so i think that that is um the biggest thing is it needs to it needs to be an evidence-based conversation and it needs to not just be about the function of the firearm but the use of that firearm and in this case the hunting use of that firearm it's not as simple as people think and so it's a complex conversation and so it needs a it needs a a really complex and and comprehensive look to make sure that you know we're applying the right lenses when making decisions about firearms policy huh well that's fascinating is there is there anything in wrapping up the report, like like your your conclusions or your recommendations? You know that you, that usually follow. Like, what are the? And I think you probably already sort of like stated them just in in what you said. Like, is the main thrust of what the whole report is saying for others to 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 take into consideration? Yeah, I would I would say. You know, one of the things that I have been saying just to try and wrap it up in a sentence is don't generalize, mm. is that it, those the generalizations that happen about firearms, 
the generalizations that are happening about hunting firearms, it leads to the stereotypes that challenge the social dialogue around firearms. So it's really the stereotypes, military style, we spent a lot of time talking about that, that got us to where we are. That's why we're having this conversation right now is because we have generalized. We have generalized and even we were guilty within the hunting community about generalizing what a hunting firearm is. You know, it has to have this look or it has to have, you know, it has to be this caliber or it has to be, you know, whatever the case may be. That is what's getting us into this problem. And I think that we want to step back and we want to have an open mind. I, I think that it's important for us, even as a hunting community, to kind of come up with a, a better common understanding. It doesn't mean you have to use the firearms. It doesn't mean you have to fully understand it, but at least understand how people use them, why they use them, and why it's important for us to have a definition of hunting firearm that encapsulates how I use firearms, how you use firearms, how all your listeners use firearms, because really it's only the collection of that that's going to give us the kind of full picture of what a hunting firearm is, because we hunt in different places, we hunt for different animals, we hunt in different conditions, different terrain, and what we need out of a hunting firearm, the performance that we need, is going to be different. And if we want to you know, uphold that standard that we have for ourselves, as you know hunters who are conservationists who think about the animal first and the, and you know quick clean kill is what we're taught in hunter education is that we really have to know and understand those firearms and that we have to understand the differences that come with the different features of those firearms and that together makes up this kind of collective idea of what a hunting firearm is and so you know we can we can come up with you know probably definitions for this species or that species or you know this province or that province and you know those do exist in some cases you know in legislation and regulations but by and large really what we're doing through this sort of dialogue and and this report is just painting the picture of the whole thing so that people understand mm -hmm. that it's bigger than them it's about the community at large and that there's a lot to consider because if we don't figure that out as a community, then how do we expect the general public to figure that out who don't understand firearms, who don't understand hunting, who don't understand the nuances of, you know, specific hunting in specific conditions and circumstances. And so, you know, we almost have, when we think about a reasonable and proportionate firearm, let's leave proportionate of it, just reasonable firearm is that we can come up with a reasonable firearm for a given hunting situation. You used that term earlier, a hunting situation. And I think that's really what this is about. For each hunting situation, we can come up with what is reasonable for that situation, and what firearm we should be using. And really that's gonna change um, depending on, on what sort of hunting situations you have. And as we know, and we talked about right, you know, right at the beginning, it's there's a myriad of hunting situations across the country and we can't generalize. And if we generalize, it's gonna lead to stereotypes and stereotypes are gonna to lead to less and less firearms that we will have available for hunting. And I think that that is really what this is about is making sure that we don't unnecessarily lose hunting firearms through a lack of understanding of people outside of the hunting community. Wow, that's a great, mm -hmm. a great capstone on that way to summarize it. That really, uh, for me, really drove the thrust of what you produced here through. Um, wow, man, what a big, what a big area. What a national debate. It's important to so many, so many people in this country. It's, uh, 
man, must have been quite, quite the uh, ride. It was it was a, it was a, it, was a, it was a journey. Um, I uh, you know people people ask me, so I'm uh, you know a, a policy guy now, but I I you know in a past life was a scientist, um, at least claimed to be, and so um, you know it it did remind me a lot of you know research that you know scientific research and that kind of sort of sort of systematic uh, approach to tackling an issue or a question, and you know is much different. Um, but it had a lot of the same kind of feeling to it. Um, and so it took me back to grad school and, you know, hmm. my, my wife can attest to, you know, some of the times I kept referring to rabbit holes. I, you just, you get into it because the questions are so interesting and it, and it, it means something, you know, in general to me as, you know, a hunter, as someone who owns firearms, um, uh, but also as part of that journey, it was it was figuring it out. You know, I'm not a firearms expert in the sense that, you know, I know, you know, all the technical details and mechanics and ballistics of firearms. Um, it was less about that and more about making the connection between all of those technical aspects and bringing them together with what we know of hunting and talking about it in the sense of what is a firearm, stripping it right down and understanding how the firearm works, at least at a basic level and then applying that to, you know, hunting situations and thinking about hunting, but not just thinking about hunting that I know that's easy. And that's really where this started is just kind of, you know, you, you start with this little kind of ball and it's, it's your world and you apply that to your thinking. And then you just add on because, you know, you're reading and you're talking to people who have a completely different perspective on hunting. And that was the fascinating part of it is just, you know, taking that lens and then saying, okay, well, here's how I think about this. But then, you know, this person in this different hunting situation thinks completely differently. And so that journey kind of, it really expanded my thinking. And that's the benefit of working for an organization like OFAH is that I, I'm exposed to that. I'm exposed to different people, different thinking, different perspectives about hunting. And it, it really starts to get you past your own little bubble. And for something like this, uh, it, it, it's necessary. And I think that, you know, it, it became a bit of a personal journey for me because when you do these, uh, this is for an affidavit for the courts. And so it's a personal affidavit. So it's sworn by me for the courts. It's not an OFAH report. And that's one of the things that people didn't necessarily understand is that this isn't an OFAH report. This is a Matt DeMille report. OFAH gave me the kind of latitude and time and support to do it. And so, you know, in amongst all the other stuff that I do in my day to day, uh, they said, you know what, do what you can to, to try and help answer this question because OFH felt that the question was important. And, um, you know, that it's, it's a really, um, it's, I think it's, we all feel when we're in this line of work, we feel passionate about what we're working on because we do it. You know, we are anglers, we are hunters, we are people who are using the resources. So talking about resource management, talking about the science behind resource management, it it just has, it embodies this kind of different feeling about how you approach your day to day. And then when you get a chance to do something like this that you think is really important for, you know, answering a question that is otherwise not being discussed in a comprehensive way, it, it just means that much more. And so, you know, it's, 
it, it was a fascinating journey for me <laughs> as an individual oh. at this point in my career and just really happy that, you know, OFH supported me in, in doing this and recognizing the need and, and the importance of it and, and allowing me to, to make it happen. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's huge. This is, this is a huge, uh, a thing for all Canadians, for hunters, future hunters. I think that's, you know, that, that, so part, part of this conversation was not what I was expecting. Like I was, I was thinking it was going to have much more of a technical kind of like, you know, measurement A versus measurement B and that kind of separates some things in hunting and we can actually, you know, um, but what I've learned from you over this conversation is just kind of like the nuance of it, right? Like there's this little bit of technical stuff, there's this little bit of ambiguity, but then there's all this human stuff of like hunting. I mean, gosh, I mean, we can even just hunting itself is like that, right? Like, I mean, somebody could be passionate about hunting, um, snipe or woodcock and, and, or, you know, uh, doll sheep in the Yukon or, you know, or big moose or something like that. Like even that is like, so nuanced. So you take that complexity, culture, the history, tradition, new traditions being formed, and you put the hunting firearm in there. It, it, I really get that there's, so much more nuance and so much more, more, you know, of who people are, who people want to be and what choices people want to have the past versus the future. And I think that's a real big one for me is, is I'm on the downhill slide. I've got fewer hunting seasons in front of me that I have behind me, but there's people that that's the opposite and they're going to and I want them to stay in it for generations more when, when I'm gone. And, and part of that in the future of hunting is going to revolve around what they have access to for their firearm. Right. Yeah. And, and that's it, it. You know, you, you mentioned something there and, you know, I've, I've done a lot of deep thinking on this, you know, not just what's in the report, but what it means. And I think that, you know, we, I talked about divisiveness earlier and the fact that, you know, that's, that's a challenge that we have as a hunting community. And we tend to let our differences kind of pull us apart. So, you know, we talked about, you know, there's hunting seasons and there's, you know, you may choose to use a muzzle loader and you may choose to use a rifle. You may choose to use a semi-automatic rifle or a shotgun. And those are differences and, and you see debate and argument between people and it divides us. And what I thought was really interesting about this report because I had to reflect on kind of, you know, what it means beyond the words on the page. And it wasn't a part of this report, but it's actually, it's that, it's that thinking around a firearm. So the firearm doesn't need to divide us. The firearm is actually what brings us together, not the choices we make, but like you said, it's the choice. And so the thinking around how we view a hunting firearm and how we use it and apply it as a hunter, depending on our hunting situation. So the firearm we choose and what we choose to use it for might be different. And a lot of times that's what people focus on is the fact that we are different because we hunt different things and we hunt in different ways. But if you use a firearm for hunting, you go through all of the same considerations, whether you're hunting sheep, or whether you're hunting white-tailed deer or rabbits, what you're using to hunt all of those species may be different. 
but the kind of path to get there as far as how you think about how a firearm is used for hunting is the same. It's the same considerations about terminal ballistics, about range to target. It's about the caliber you choose. It's about how heavy of a firearm am I willing to carry? Do I need that to be, you know, ambidextrous? Do I need to, um, you know, have uh, a bipod attached to it? Do I need certain optics? It's like you think about all those things and you may not need them and you may not use them, but those, those, that kind of path we take to get there is all the same. And so I think that that is the thing about this report is it's saying, hey, as hunters, we go through this journey with our hunting firearms. We think about hunting firearms because we need to because it's a critical tool for what we do. And I think that that's something that we can, as a community, come together because no one can disagree with that. They may disagree with the choice you make because everyone has different you know, perspectives and opinions. But the fact that we have those choices around what a hunting firearm is is critical and that's the thing as a hunting community that we can all get together and support and that's why i think that this report it doesn't it doesn't pick a side it doesn't choose what a hunting firearm is it doesn't prescribe to anybody what they should be using or how they should be using it but it does say that we all do have those choices and here's why all of those individual considerations and choices are important for us having success as as hunters because of how important the firearm is in that activity well that's that's profound um that's um so we'll we'll put the link um to the report in the show notes um you also just published um like an an article sort of an essay which was a, a lot of this i think personal reflection sort of stuff on this this project that you worked on the the bigger report um I read that today and, and it, it's, it's you it, like, I mean, it's really you and your heart, heart speaking and a, a lot of like what you, what you've been doing here. Um, so I'll put that up to people, people can read those, but I also want to leave like your thoughts for folks listening, going into the future of this, this debate, because it is not over. It's going to continue, um, throughout our history and the next election and the next one and that sort of stuff. What, what can people do? What, what are a couple of things you think are really important for people in this conversation about what is a hunting firearm in Canada? Well, I think the first thing, and I mentioned it before, I think is no matter what the dialogue is on, on firearms is just keep an open mind. It may be different than what you've known or what you think. Um, Keep an open mind you know, listen, educate yourself, you know, talk to others who, you know, maybe think differently about firearms. I think that that's important. I think that that kind of helps expand, you know, our own individual thinking on this, which helps, I think, the collective conversation. I think that that's important because, you know, we we tend to, um, you know, kind of, I would say, you know, debate each other rather than maybe debate with those people who don't understand, right? So it's that kind of inward debate rather than the outward debate. I think that um, the second thing is to, lead by example and be a good ambassador for the hunting community in discussions about anything. I think that goes, uh, mm. you know, way beyond firearms, but I think that's critically important. I think that social media is this, you know, amazing tool for connecting everyone, but it can also be, um, you know, a terrible place for, you know, people to, 
um, leave a bad impression of what the hunting community is by the way that people are talking uh, about uh, the hunting community. And that goes for the firearms community at large as well. And so I think that, that that's important. Uh, so I think that those are kind of two things that people can just, you know, do and think about themselves. Um, I, I think, I think the bigger um, conversation around firearms and firearms policy is just to, um, you know, have good dialogue for us to start to, um, you know, show that we can have that common understanding. And I think that comes through really those, those first two, doing those first two is, you know, having constructive, um, mm-hmm. you know, dialogue on social media, which is, um, you know, harder said than done for, uh, for some folks. Uh, but can, that constructive dialogue, um, I think keeping that open mind and then having that, you know, solid debate uh, right here within our own community and and then it's it's really you know as far as what um you know will happen next in this conversation is that we don't know to what effect we will have um in the courts and so there's going to be um you know things happening within the court uh challenges and a part of the conversation will be related to this um you know what the report and that question that's being asked and so i think it's um just you know, keeping an eye on, um, you know, what's happening with um, that discussion, see how it, un- how it unfolds. And then it's, um, you know, applying that to um, what people do moving forward uh, as far as, you know, asking questions of, um, you know, within the political community. So that could be a local uh, MP um, being engaged in that sort of conversation. I think it's, it, it, it's, always important whether your MP is part of the government opposition is just having a, you know like we said earlier a constructive and positive dialogue about firearms to make sure that individual uh, political uh, leaders are aware not just parties not just you know the ultimate leaders of parties uh, but to talk to the local MPs because they'll understand the situations, you know, like a lot of what we talked about, the hunting situations, you know, applying um, these ideas and these thoughts about what a hunting firearm is and get them thinking and asking questions and raise awareness of, you know, that constructive conversation around what a hunting firearm is. So um, I, I, there's probably other things, but I think those those things are really important. Oh, those are huge. Those are huge. Yeah, I mean, especially like the open mind educating yourself uh, and and then, yeah, I mean, just like wildlife management, uh, we're always advocating like people go talk to their elected officials, right? Because it, it you don't have to be an expert. You, you can just have to tell them, what does this mean to you? What does this mean to you as a hunting firearm, as a hunter? Just talk to your elected officials about that. You don't need to be, you know, like, like yourself, you said, I don't need to be a firearm expert. So you don't need to be an expert when you talk to them Just say, this is what a hunting firearm is, is to me. And, and the value in that is it's grassroots. And, and this is how democracy works. But our elected officials are putting this concept of what a hunting firearm is to their constituents to a face, to like their neighbor, you know, um, and, and that amplified hundreds of thousands or millions of time across the country is, is, is massive, is really massive. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's also not, you know, they, otherwise they pick up their news on social media or, you know, the headlines they see. And I think it's important to, you know, it's what, you know, you brought out of this too, is it's, it's human. It's the human part of this conversation because hunting is a human activity. 
And it's something that we're all so passionate about. And sometimes that's what drives the dialogue in a negative way, but it can also drive the dialogue in a positive way because we are so passionate. We love it. And I think that, you know, that shines through and you just need that platform and that ability to talk to someone who has influence. Absolutely. What a fascinating topic. Thanks so much for your time, Matt, coming on um, to, to, to this was, this was a really enlightening episode, man. Yeah, well, thanks really? for having me, and I I apologize that I I couldn't be more technical and you know stumpy on you know no, those things that make a a firearm. But I think that that's you know that's I think that's also the the thing about this conversation. This is the cool is part different. about it. It it is, uh, and I think I think I think it's easier for people to relate to this now. This what is a hunting firearm when they think about it in this social, cultural, individual kind of context of hunting and hunting different hunting situations than having to like, oh God, what's a, what's a jewel? Like is my, how many jewels come out the end of my barrel when I pull the trigger and all this kind of stuff, right? And it's like, oh my God, there's a measurement to the inside or the outside of the threads. Uh, no, just like, 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 yeah, think, think about this, this human part. So yeah, thanks Matt. Um, yeah. And thank you to the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters for allowing you to come on and um, speak speak your mind, speak from the heart, but also representing one of Canada's finest provincial hunting and angling federations. Uh, big shout out to them. I would leave folks, if you, one of the last things you can do to stay on top of this, um, like Matt said, follow what's going to happen in the courts and stuff. Sign up for for Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters newsletters, um, social media, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, because they're constantly putting this information out. Um, and you can even join. Like, I don't think you have to be a resident of Ontario to belong, right? So, nope. no, you so I, I do honestly believe, uh, and, I, and I will say this, when it comes to the firearm portfolio for hunters, um, you guys are standing up for Canadians in one of the strongest ways I've seen across, you know, the, the province. And I would, I would continue to give you my, my support for that, even though I don't live in Ontario and I hope others will as well. So, yeah. um, thanks for all of that. Great conversation. Yeah. I appreciate it. And, and, uh, appreciate the support for OFH as well. And, um, you know, we're happy to, to continue to do this on behalf of hunters and it's conversations like this and, and support from guys like you that, uh, you know, really keeps us going. So thank you very much. Awesome. Take it away, Curtis. Cool. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. That was awesome. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by Community Minded Alpine Toyota. We've said it before. They are huge supporters of Ducks Unlimited Canada and huge supporters of us. So we, we really love that. That's what we like about the folks down at Alpine Toyota. So if you're in Alpine and you're uh, maybe buying a set of tires or going in and having a look around, just know that uh, when you're spending money with them or hanging out or supporting them, that you're also directly supporting conservation efforts through Ducks Unlimited. So you Absolutely. Can feel, you can feel good about the new set of tires that you're going out to the duck blind with. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. The owner of Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, um, Bruce, he's going to love this episode because we sat in his office earlier this summer for like an hour um, talking about a lot of these exactly, the grizzly bears and 
fishing and 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 firearms so he's uh he's really gonna love this one as well and be proud of sponsoring it so um thanks matt and hey everybody thanks for listening and we will see you in the next episode